We're going to be reading Ruth chapter 3. It's on page 260 in your pew Bible, so you can turn there. We'll read it in just a moment. I wanted to start this morning by asking a question that maybe we shouldn't be asking at church. Or maybe this is exactly the place to ask a question like this. Here's the question. Do you ever have doubts about the Christian faith? Do you ever doubt God's existence? Or maybe you believe he exists. Do you ever doubt his love and his care and his provision for you? Do you ever wonder whether this uh, whole Christian thing is just made up? It's just a, a game that we're all kind of playing together to help us get through life. Do you ever wonder that? Maybe the most likely time for someone to doubt the Christian faith is during a difficult season of life. You know, we've been watching the news, of course, and we're, we're feeling awfully baffled over world events. What's happened in San Bernardino and, of course, the Paris attacks recently. You know, people of the world are watching this and they're grieving together. And you've got to imagine there's people in California, people in France that are doubting God's goodness and his love. How could a good God allow such horrific things to happen? Of course, dark seasons can hit closer to home, like the death of a loved one or cancer or you find yourself out of a job or you find yourself yet again engrossed in a besetting sin. And then you start to wonder, does God really love me? Does God really care? Is he really behind me? Is he really for me? Sometimes we throw up these prayers and we feel like they're just kind of going up into the stratosphere, into nothingness. And we wonder whether prayer is simply uh, a psychological coping mechanism. Have you ever had thoughts like this? I certainly have. In 2009, as many of you know, my dad unexpectedly died of a heart attack. And the months uh, following that, uh, that untimely death could be characterized by a lot of things, of course, pain and grief and confusion for me. But perhaps for the first time in my life, at least in such a pronounced way, I struggled with doubts. I doubted my Christian faith. I wondered whether God really loved me, whether he loved my mom, whether he loved my sister. I wondered whether all along I was just playing a Christian game. You know, maybe you're not yet a Christian and you've been exploring and studying and, and you're interested in this Christian thing and that's why you're here this morning. And, and you, you're loving the stuff that you're learning in the Bible about Jesus. But you haven't taken that first step of faith. You haven't surrendered to Jesus just yet. Something is holding you back from grabbing a hold of Christ in faith. And I think that something might be doubt. Maybe you're doubting the, uh, the Bible's authority in your life. Maybe you're, you're doubting the, the historical accuracy of the, the events presented in the Bible. Maybe you're doubting his, his love or, or that Jesus really died on the cross for you. Well, the book of Ruth is a timely tonic for doubters. And why do I say that? Well, I say that because in Ruth, you've got a few people who are wrestling with faith in the midst of a dark season. That's what you see in Ruth. 
You got one woman, Naomi, who has grown up knowing God all her life. She's doubting. Her faith is shaky because tragedy has struck her family. Her her husband's dead. Her two sons have died. What is she going to do? And we hear Naomi saying things like, God's hand has gone out against me. The Lord has afflicted me. And of course, we feel for her and we wonder together, how is she going to regain her faith? There's another woman in this story, of course. It's Ruth, and she's found new faith in God. She's lost her husband, too. She's going through some tough stuff, too. But Ruth has attached herself to Naomi and devoted herself to Naomi's God, Yahweh. And so for the first time, she encounters this God, and she begins to live, according to chapter 2, under the wings of God, which is just another way of saying she's starting to have faith in this God. And so we see her faith growing in dark times. And that brings us to chapter 3. And what we see in this chapter is, through the lives of Ruth and Naomi, what we see is what faith looks like. What faith looks like in the midst of a stubborn darkness, in the midst of clouds that aren't breaking in our lives. What does faith look like? You know, maybe you're living in a season right now where you feel like God is distant from you. Uh, Maybe the, the spiritual well is dry. What does faith look like for you right now? Maybe you're living in a season when everything is falling apart. The circumstances of life are harsh for you right now. What does faith look like for you? Well, let's look at these two women and and see what we can learn about faith. So let's look first at Naomi in the first few verses here of chapter 3, starting in verse 1. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be, on a, uh, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, as we come before your word, we acknowledge that we are weak, simple-minded people who desperately need grace even to understand this story the significance of this story, and to apply it to our lives. So would you come upon us, Holy Spirit? Would you fill us up so that we can not only understand the truths of this passage, but we can see the beauty of these truths? Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is our Redeemer. And we pray that we would celebrate his redemption this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. So we see in this opening scene that faith, we see a faith, excuse me, a faith that is reawakened and energized. That's what we see in Naomi, a faith that's reawakened and energized. So Naomi is a changed woman in this chapter. Do you see that? Think about chapter one. She was a broken and bitter woman in chapter one. 
She came back to Bethlehem, her hometown, and she's like, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. Remember that? She, she says, because I went away to Moab full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So she was bitter and unhappy, and of course experiencing all kinds of pain when she came back to Bethlehem, her hometown. But I think her pain continues in chapter 2 as well. As Ruth goes off in the fields and she starts to work, why isn't Naomi in the fields with her? Did you ever think about that? Why isn't Naomi? It's not because she's an old woman. It might be what we think. I think it's because she's depressed. She's discouraged. She says, Ruth, you go ahead. You go out in the fields. You work hard for our well-being. But she doesn't have what it takes inside. She, she, she's not whole yet. She's grieving. She's discouraged. She doesn't have hope. She's mainly thinking about herself in these first couple chapters, and it's hard for her to see other people. It's hard for her to get to work. And, of course, we've all been there, haven't we? We can relate to Ruth. But something has happened here in chapter 3. Do you see that? Something has happened in this chapter. She is more together. She's, she's thinking about Naomi. She's, she's loving her daughter-in-law, Ruth. So what happened to bring about this new place in Naomi's heart? Well, the clouds started to break in her life. The, the darkness started to lift. She started to see and experience God's love for her. Do you remember that word uh, Jeremy introduced last week, hesed? It's like, (laughs) said something like that. I don't know how to say it. So from now on, I'm just going to say hesed. Okay, hesed. I think we can all say that together. So God's hesed showed up. And hesed, what it means is God's covenant faithfulness to his people, his covenant steadfast love and loyalty to his people. That's what hesed is. And so God's hesed started to manifest itself in Naomi's life. Slowly, in small doses, very slowly, in a few ways. Ruth's commitment and presence to Naomi. Do you remember that? In chapter 1, as she attached herself, devoted herself to Naomi. What a breath of fresh air for Naomi. When everything was falling apart, here's Ruth who says, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. That's some hesed love. And then Ruth works in the fields and she, she begins to bring back food. And there's some hesed there. And then, she, and, and then Naomi remembers there's this guy named Boaz. It's, it's one of our kinsmen and he might be able to take care of us. And so she starts to have some hope. The clouds are breaking for Naomi. The darkness is starting to subside. In other words, her faith is starting to grow. And that's what we see in this chapter early on. Now, our faith, too, is reawakened by God's hesed showing up in our lives. You know, God's hesed shows up in surprising ways. Maybe, maybe it's a conversation with an old friend. Maybe it's a, a thoughtful note or, or even a hug or a, a smile from a, from a brother or sister or a word from the Bible that pierces your heart or an or a unexpected time of prayer with some brothers or sisters that leaves you undone. I had one of those experiences last weekend. God Hesed slowly funnels into our lives. Sometimes it's so slow that we don't even notice it, but it's there. If you're wondering how to get back your faith when you're spiritually dry, well, it's fairly simple. Here it is. God's got to do it. God's got to do it. 
He has to reawaken your faith. He's got to show you his faithfulness. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, it means that we've got to pray. If you're in that time, in that season of darkness or depression or discouragement, if you have no hope, what do you, what do you need to do? You've got to pray for spiritual breakthroughs. You've got to pray for a personal revival in your life. We've got to, pray to we've got to pray that we would have the eyes to see God's hesed in our lives because here's the deal. God's hesed is always there. It's never left us. The question is, the issue is, do we have the eyes to see it? And will our hard hearts be softened up to receive that love? Remember the last verse of Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow God's sheep all the days of our lives. It's always there, do we see it? It's interesting as we look at Naomi in the scene, her faith is not only reawakened, her faith is also re-energized for a particular purpose. Do you see that? All of a sudden, she has the ability to see Ruth, to love Ruth. So she starts to scheme and plot and strategize on behalf of Ruth, right? And let's be honest, when we read these, um, these instructions that Naomi gives Ruth, um, at first glance at least, it is really strange, right? What is going on here? Any, uh, any women here lay at the feet of the man? Any, anybody do that? Anybody ever try? I don't recommend it. It's not a good strategy. So uh, let's look at these instructions, uh, starting in verse 2. Naomi says, Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing, uh, threshing floor. And so this is the scene, the threshing floor, and winnowing is the activity that's going on. So what is winnowing? Well, winnowing was the festive, joyous climax of the harvest process because it was the last step in harvesting grain. So, you know, it, it involved separating the kernels from the chaff. So you have these shovels, you have these rakes, and you're, you're throwing up the, uh, the, the mixture, and, and the chaff would be blown away with the evening breeze, and then what would fall to the ground is the grain. And then there would be these piles of grain all over the threshing floor. So that's kind of the, the scene. And afterwards, typically the workers, and, and uh, in this case Boaz, you know, the boss, they would get together and they would have this party. They'd eat and drink because this is the final step in harvesting. So everybody's excited. Now notice Naomi asks Ruth also to, uh, in verse 3, to, to wash and perfume, perfume yourself and to put on your best clothes. So she, she looks at Ruth and she says, go gussy yourself up and, 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 and go hang out with this dude in the middle of the night, right? So she's basically saying, go make yourself smoking hot for Boaz. That's, that's at least what I read at, at first glance. But she was saying a lot more than this. You see, this process of washing and anointing with perfume and putting on new clothes, it also signaled that Ruth's mourning Mourning over her husband was over. It was done. You see, she was wearing these dark clothes. And maybe Ruth had worn garments of widowhood, these uh, dark clothes, when she was in the fields working uh, uh, for Boaz. And so Boaz, as, as Boaz was looking out at Ruth, he was taken up by her character, but she was still in mourning. 
And maybe that's why Boaz didn't pursue Ruth. And so Naomi says, hey, listen, your, your time of mourning is over. It's time to go and get married. And of course, Boaz, as he saw her that night, would recognize that as well. So what's this business about uncovering the feet and lying down? What does that mean? Well, I don't exactly know. But here's what I do know. Naomi was asking Ruth to put herself in a place of great vulnerability before Boaz. Now, why do I say that? You see, at winnowing time, at the threshing floors, it was often a place where, I'm going to use some euphemism here for the sake of the kids, but it was often a place of uh, immoral behavior where immoral women women would show up and and, uh, offer their services. And we don't know uh, a lot about uh, what else is going on during this time. It was the time of the judges, so it was, it was kind of a, a rough time, an immoral time. But we do know that Naomi and Ruth's intentions were certainly not immoral. This whole book affirms the fact that Ruth is a woman of character. She's a worthy woman. And so what they wanted was the protection and the security and the rest that only marriage would provide. This is remarkable. Because Naomi had huge confidence in Boaz and his character, that Boaz would treat Ruth well as this all unfolded. She was trusting that as as Ruth put herself out there, as, as Ruth put herself out there in this vulnerable position, Boaz wouldn't take advantage. Now, he would read Ruth and her intentions correctly. And we're going to see what happens in just a moment. But, but first, let's think about this scene for a moment. What do we learn from this scene? What do we learn from this scene? Well, not only does God reestablish and revitalize faith with his hesed, with his love, but we also learn that God's hesed changes us. It energizes us. It, it gives us the juice to plan and strategize and get creative for God's purposes. You know, sometimes we think planning and strategizing and plotting and scheming, those are all negative things, and they work, they work against faith. That if we have a big, robust faith, that we're going to sit on our hands and, and maybe pray and wait on God to do everything. But here, we see that planning and strategizing, it's actually an expression of deeper faith. In other words, if you really believe God is God, if you really believe that his love is real, then you're going to plan and you're going to dream some big things. In other words, big faith means big plans and big dreams. The elders of uh, South Shore Baptist Church, they're, they're starting to lay out a, a, a plan, a new plan for prayer and fasting in 2016. And Kevin Jameson and uh, Elliot Lyons are leading the way. And they're doing this because they recognize God's hesed in the life of this church. And they're doing it because they recognize this is a new season for South Shore Baptist Church. So we need to be, we need to be praying. Those are some good plans, right? That's, that's some good plotting and scheming. And that's the kind of plotting and scheming that comes from a robust faith and trust in God. You know, we've got these Christmas postcard invitations downstairs in the the lower lobby. You've, You've probably seen them. There's a couple stacks down there. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to go downstairs after the service, pick up a couple cards, and then we want you to plot and scheme a little bit. 
We want you to think about who are, who, are, who are a couple people in your life, who's one person, who's two people in your life who don't know Jesus that you can start to pray for during this Christmas season, who you can invite to the Christmas, East, uh, Christmas Eve services so that they can hear about Christ. Big faith means big plans and big dreams. So if you're in the midst of a spiritually dry time, if God seems distant to you, don't just sit on your hands. Make a plan. And can I make a specific suggestion to you if that's you, if you're in a spiritually dry time? Make a plan in the next, let's say, four weeks. Make a plan to pray and fast. Make a plan to pray and fast. Plead with God to make himself known to you during that season. Plead with him to revitalize your faith. Plead with him to show up and give you new energy. And if you do that, I think he will answer that prayer over time. How else might the Lord want you to strategize and plan and dream big for his purposes in 2016. We're coming up upon a new year. It's a great time to not only evaluate 2015, but then also think and plot and strategize for 2016. So as families, as, as, as husbands and wives, as you guys come together, as, as uh, single people, get together with some of your friends and think about how might we plot and plan and dream big for God's purposes in 2016. So with Naomi, we see a faith that is not only reawakened, but we see a faith that is energized for God's purposes. So now let's consider Ruth in this story. Start reading verses 6 through 9. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am Ruth, your servant, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. So what do we see in Ruth? Well, we see a faith that risks and a faith that loves. A faith that risks and a faith that loves. You know, it's one thing to make plans and to strategize. It's a whole other thing to put those plans into action. Naomi isn't the one on the threshing floor this evening. Ruth is. Naomi isn't the one uncovering some dude's feet in the middle of the night. Ruth is. Ruth is the one who makes herself vulnerable before a powerful, authoritative, and wealthy man, Boaz. It's a vulnerable position because Boaz has one of three options in terms of his response to Ruth as he wakes up. Option number one, he can take advantage of her. It's definitely an option. Of course, that's not Ruth's intentions, but that's an option. Option number two, he can reject her as an immoral woman. And he's a noble man. He's a man of character. He could just shoo her away. He could shame her as Moabite trash. Now, those are some bad options. Those are some horrible options. You can see why this was so risky for Ruth. You can see why she was making herself vulnerable in this moment. But there was also, of course, a third option, 
And that option is he would recognize the true meaning of Ruth's actions, and he would respond to her graciously, generously. That's what Naomi and Ruth were hoping. But to make things even more transparent, look at what Ruth communicates in verse 9. She communicates her intentions clearly in verse 9. She says, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. More literally there, it says, spread your wings. In ancient Hebrew culture, spread the corners of your garments uh, was an idiom for saying, can I come under the protection of uh, of your household, of your wings, of your family? So the act of covering was like giving a woman an engagement ring in ancient Near Eastern culture. And to make it even more clear, she calls him a kinsman redeemer. This was a man who had the means and the resources to marry a widowed woman in his family. And the the purpose of this special marriage was to preserve the family line and provide for the needs of the widowed woman. And usually the closest relative would serve in this role. So that's what kinsman redeemer means. And Ruth's saying, hey, I recognize you as one of our family kinsman redeemers. Now spread the corner of your garment over me or marry me. So Ruth is basically making a bold marriage proposal. She's, uh, you know, getting down on her knee. And she's saying, marry me, Boaz. But, you know, she was actually saying even more than this. Flip back to Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, we see here uh, Boaz's response to Ruth after he first takes notice of her. Verse 12 says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And we, we see wings again in that verse. And so here Boaz praises her for putting herself under God's wings, and, and he's, sort of, he's sort of blessing her and even praying over her in this moment. And so Ruth's words in chapter 3 are more than just a bold proposal. They are asking Boaz to become the embodiment of God's character and kindness to Ruth. So Ruth is asking Boaz essentially to be the answer to his own prayer and blessing. And this is an audacious, audacious request on Ruth's behalf. Here we have a servant demanding that the boss marry her. We have a Moabite outsider making the demand of an Israelite insider. We have a woman making a demand of a man. A poor person making a demand of a rich person. This is audacious. This is risky. This is bold. This is Ruth. This is a woman of faith. This is a woman whose faith in God during the darkest times has shaped her to be bold and risky. She trusts her God. We need to take one more step before we see the fullness of what's going on here. Check out Boaz's response in verse 10. Boaz says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz praises her for her demonstration of kindness, and that word kindness there is hesed. There we see it again. Hesed. And he says that this, this act of hesed is better than the first act of hesed. Back in chapter 2, he mentioned the first act of hesed. 
And that was Ruth leaving her home, giving up on her former life, and attaching herself to Naomi and Naomi's people. That was kindness to Naomi. That was the first act. But Boaz says, this act is greater. Now, here's one of the many surprises of this beautiful story. It's a love story. Absolutely, it's a love story, but not the kind that we often watch on the movies or read in the novels. This greater act of kindness isn't towards Boaz. This greater act of kindness is towards Naomi. It's amazing. Ruth Ruth is not only trying to secure a husband for herself, she's trying to secure, through marriage, the well-being of her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz sees this as he's responding to her. He says, wow, you're you're, you're coming to me? Why, Why would you come to me when you've got all these younger prospects around You're coming to me because I will take care of your mother-in-law. I'm going to take care of Naomi. You know, it seems nowadays that marriage is about two people. The husband and the wife. But here we see an example where marriage is about ministry. It's about offering hesed to other people. It's It's not first about self-fulfillment. Marriage is not first about making your spouse happy or fulfilling your spouse's needs. It's about partnering together as husband and wife to bless others, to bless other people. That's what Ruth was proposing here. That's what Boaz would eventually accept. Now, of course, Boaz and Ruth loved each other. I mean, again, this is a, a great love story in the Bible, probably one of the greatest that we see in Scripture So there's a wonderful story here, but it was a love story that encompassed others. In particular, of course, Naomi. From the very beginning, from its inception, this marriage took into consideration Naomi. You know, I know couples in this church that exemplify this, and I want to call them out right now, but I don't want to embarrass them. But you know these couples too. You, you walk into their home, you, you walk into their presence, you share a meal with them, and there's this warmth and there's, there, there's this tenderness and there's this blessing that you encounter. And it's because their, their minds aren't just, just on themselves. Their minds are thinking of others as they welcome you. What a great picture of marriage for all of us here this morning. You know, this also reminds me of Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Okay, Paul, so what counts for something? Only faith working through love. That's what counts. Faith working through love. And what does that mean? I think Ruth exemplifies that in this story. Big faith not only means big plans and big strategies and and big prayers, it means big, robust, radical love for people. That's what big faith does in our lives. So what do we see in Ruth? Well, we see a faith that risks and a faith that loves. You know, there's a great biblical legacy of risky love. If you scan across the pages of the Old and New Testaments, you see risky love all over the place. Joab facing the, the Syrians on one side, the Ammonites on the other, he said to his brother Abishai, let us be courageous for our people. 
And may the Lord do what seems good to him. You remember the story of Esther? Esther breaks the royal law to save her people because she loves her people. And then she says, if I perish, I perish. That's some risky love. And when the Holy Spirit told the Apostle Paul that in every city imprisonment and, aff- uh, imprisonment and afflictions await him, he says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course, which was to preach the gospel to lost people, to love them through the preaching of the gospel. And Ruth comes alongside all of these people and more and says, old man, marry me. Marry me. Redeem me because I love you, yes, but redeem me also so that my mother-in-law can have a future. What a beautiful love story this is. Brothers and sisters, is your love for people risky? Is it courageous and daring and costly? You know, Christians aren't called to ask the question, what is the safest path for me? Christians are called to ask the question, what is the most loving path for me? Imagine if Jesus focused on the first question about safety instead of focusing on the second question about love. This church wouldn't even exist right now because he wouldn't have chosen the cross. But he saved a people for himself at the cost only to himself. Costly love. How might God be calling you to love and risk during this Christmas season? Can you think of one person in your life right now who is needy, who needs your attention, who needs your care and love and presence? Can you think of one person? Brothers and sisters, would you be like Ruth? Would you be like Jesus? Would you move towards them in love this season? So Naomi presents us with a faith that is reawakened and energized. Ruth shows us a faith that risks and love. But of course, there's a third character in this story too. His name's Boaz. Boaz. Let's read how he responds to Ruth, starting in verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman, uh, kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, 
Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Notice how Boaz responds to Ruth. He picked option three. He could have taken advantage of her in her vulnerable position. He could have treated her as Moabite trash scavenging in the garbage cans of Israel. Chapter 2. He could have turned her away as an immoral woman who corrupts his people. He could have shooed her away. He could have caused her great shame for the rest of her life in Bethlehem. But he responds to her with incredible graciousness and generosity, doesn't he? He blesses her. He notices her kindness. He acknowledges her noble character. And yes, he sees her great boldness, but he he sees something else here. He sees her faith. He sees her faith. There's a bit of a tension here as he realizes there's other potential suitors for for this woman, uh, redeemers who are closer than him. In other words, a closer relative who can redeem this family. And, uh, you know, as readers were reading this, we're like, oh, man, come on. I mean, we want Boaz to go get the girl, right? We want, we want there to be a happy ending here. This is a bad turn of affairs. But just like a, a good chick flick or a bad chick flick, I don't know whether there's a good one out there. <laughs> just like a chick flick, good things are coming. Good things are coming. And those things are actually hinted at here in this chapter too. Look at verse 17. He gives Ruth and Naomi a bunch of food because he doesn't want them to be empty-handed, more literally empty. Naomi once recognized her own emptiness and barrenness in life, chapter 1. But Boaz is seeking to make their lives full again. Notice also verse 18. It says he won't rest until this matter is settled. Boaz is working overtime to make sure that these two women are taken care of. He's not going to rest. He's working so hard that, so that Ruth can have rest and home and a protection. This guy is unbelievable. I mean, I, I hope every guy in this room, as you're, you're listening to this story, you, you want to be like Boaz. And every, every, every woman in this room, you, you want to be with a guy like Boaz. You know, in this story, Boaz is God's man because he represents God's power and his authority and his character. And according to Ruth, once again, he can even embody God's hesed to her. You know, I read a story like this, and uh, one of the things it does, it, it creates in me a longing. And maybe it, it, it does that for you too. A longing for someone to take care of me like Boaz was taking care of Ruth. And I think that's exactly the purpose of this story. It's to create in us a longing, a longing for God to provide something like a Boaz for his people. And of course, the good news of the New Testament is that God has done that in Jesus Christ. We've been singing these songs about Jesus being our redeemer. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. 
Jesus is the one who sees our vulnerability. He sees our faith and he loves it. He loves it. He responds to it. Jesus is the one who sees us in in spiritual poverty without any future prospects. And he pays our spiritual debts and he's going to lavish his wealth and riches on us for all time. Jesus is the one who sees our empty lives and he's seeking to make it full again. Jesus is the one who's not going to rest, who is working overtime until we have received our full redemption. If you are not yet a Christian this morning and uh, you're here and you're hearing yet again another sermon on Jesus, listen, you don't need to have all the answers when you come to him in faith. You don't need to have all your questions figured out. All you need to do is be willing to lay at the feet of Jesus and, and beg him to receive you. Beg him to take you under his wings. All you need to do is acknowledge your spiritual poverty, your sinfulness, your inability to do this life the way it should be done and ask him to bring you within his protection. And he will cover you. If you do that, he will cover you with his righteous robes. If you are a Christian today, then you need to know that laying at the feet of Jesus and asking him to take you under his wings isn't a one-time deal. It's a daily discipline. It's the rhythm of the Christian life. If you're wondering, why, why is God so different? Why is he so far away? Maybe it's because you've forgotten to lay at his feet and cry out desperately for his protection and care and love. Maybe you've forgotten to make yourself vulnerable to him yet again. Jesus is your kinsman redeemer, brothers and sisters, today and always. So put yourself under his wings. Put yourself under his care and protection. Make yourself vulnerable before him. And listen, he's not going to take advantage of you. He's not going to shame you. He's not going to hang you out to dry. He will respond with unbelievable generosity and grace. He will accept your faith. He will welcome you. He will love you. And over time, you're going to see those clouds part. You're going to see the darkness lift up. You're going to, you're going to see light come through the clouds. You're going to feel the warmth of the sun. Let's pray. Father, we glory today in our kinsman redeemer, Jesus. We're so thankful that he is our Boaz, that he has come to rescue us, he has come to to, to steal us away, that he he sees us as as that foreigner with no rights, with no privileges, and yet he loves us. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift. Thank you for dying on the cross for sinners like us. Thank you for redeeming us, buying us freedom and bringing us into your family. Father, help us to live this daily rhythm of begging desperately for your love, lying at your feet in submission. Teach us what that looks like this week. Build up our faith in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.